Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. How you doing out there, critics? Hope you're having a good time today. Uh, it's Easter, I, so some of you might be celebrating and eating and candying and peeping and that sort of thing. Uh, so good times all around. Um, I, you can see I am redesigning a little bit of my background there. I have thrown a TV up on the wall behind me, in which I can plug into my laptop here. And I just did this uh, the other day, so haven't even gotten around to designing anything to throw on there yet. And that's the next step. So hopefully by next week, I'll have my uh, self-organized a little bit better. Um, but I wanted to, uh, but I got got that much done. Okay, so I wanted to plug my podcast this week. It is called How to Understand Everything, which is clearly a title that has almost no appeal to anybody on my channel. And I am honestly down for feedback on what it is that I might be doing wrong that I am putting content up that nobody really cares about. So I would really like to find out what that's about. So if you guys could give me some feedback on that. You know, if you're only here to see Scientology stuff, okay, I get it, then fine. Everything else I do that's not Scientology, you don't care anything about. I think that's, you know, uh, a little demoralizing for me, to be honest. Um, but it is what it is. I get it. I totally get it. You know, my, um, my channel is, is uh, you know, doesn't have universal appeal and all of that. Um, but I do want to produce content that you guys do want to see um, without being a one-hit wonder or, you know, a one-note band or something, you know, in other words, the, you know, just Scientology. So I'm kind of asking, you know, like, what, what's up with that? So if you guys want to let me know, I would be happy to hear from you on that, either by email or in the comments section or whatever, okay? You know, the only kind of comments that I really react negatively to is not constructive criticism of my channel or what I'm trying to do. It's negative insulting content or, or commentary and comments. Uh, you're a doofus. No wonder you never, you know, it's obvious you never left the cult. Uh, how dare you, you know, uh, say something critical about Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, clearly you're still a Scientologist, you know, this kind of crap, right? I, 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 you know, I don't need to hear that and you don't need to tell me that. But um, if there is something that you think would help me in, um, in increasing or expanding my channel and its reach, and its general in, you know, interest, then I would like to know that. Um, you know, on the other hand, if you want to check out the podcast I just posted and some of the content I've posted recently that is not Scientology, directly Scientology related, then um, please do so and let me know what you think about that too, because um, maybe it actually is really good content and it's just that people just don't watch it because they don't know what it's about or something. I, I just don't know. But, um, but I'd like to find out. And the only way I know how to do that is to solicit information from you guys. Enough said. So let's go ahead and get on with your questions now because you guys have asked me some really interesting questions this week. I actually got some fascinating questions. So uh, let's get to it, starting with, of course, a Scientology question. Michael Blau. As a follow-up to my question last week about worksheets and auditing, sometimes an auditor is required to create a new PC folder usually because additional space is needed or a folder was damaged in some way. Many auditors take the opportunity to express artistic or verbal talent in creating a folder. 
There are many impressive and interesting looking folders, often having humorous phrases, name variations, or even caricatures. It's always in good taste. Did you notice that in your time? All right, thanks for this question, Michael. And for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about with folders and worksheets, in Scientology, uh, when you go in for auditing, which is their equivalent of counseling, even though I use that term very loosely, um, when you're going in for the Scientology processes, the auditor, the one who's administering the procedures, keeps a running record of what's going on in the session. And I detailed that last week in talking about the worksheets. Well, the worksheets go into a folder. The folder is a manila legal size folder. Um, it's, it's not colored. It's just plain manila. And your name and the date the folder was started and the number of the folder, because you're going to have number multiple folders when you're involved in Scientology. When I left, I had over 50. I think I had about 60 or some odd folders. So they, you, you can accumulate quite a few um, as you get more and more auditing. And these worksheets are kept of the sessions, and they can get kind of thick. I've seen worksheets for a single session that ran over 100 pages of handwritten, you know, the, the auditors were just flying away, keeping the worksheets. Inside the PC folder, the preclear PC is the person who's getting auditing. Um, inside that folder are all those worksheets, but also are other administrative forms and, and uh, technical documents and stuff about you and your progress in auditing. For example, one, on the inside cover of the folder, there's a binder clip which clips a bunch of stuff together. There's a folder summary in there that gives a little summary, a little box. It's a legal sheet of paper uh, divided in two, and they, they kind of keep a little summary of all the auditing you've ever received by date and how long the session was and basically what was covered in the session. So that's your summary of the session, but then the worksheets are the running record of the session that give all the details of it. So between these two things, you can quickly see what kind of auditing the person's had and what happened in the auditing. Uh, when a new folder is created, that's also marked on the folder summary. So this is all, and then the folder summary itself, when you make a new folder, it and all of the other stuff gets moved over to the next folder. So there's a whole little procedure to this. It's all documented. It's very technical. I mean, they, they actually pay a lot of attention to this in the world of Scientology. This is all part of the administration of auditing. So around the, um, to, to now, Michael, you and I are both, you know, for old school Scientologists. I mean, we, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, we were involved in Scientology. And um, back then, folders were hand-drawn. So you would write the name of the person and the date the folder started and the number. And um, you would also write that on the binding of the folder because the folders are stacked in closets and you can see you know, by looking at the sides of the folders, whose folders is whose. And some people would get very artistic in creating these folders. They would use colored markers, or they would use two markers, do a little, like, make it look like the person's name had little, had, had shadow underneath it. It was, a, was kind of a fancy uh, sort of uh, highlighter I saw used one time to kind of create this sort of 3D effect with the lettering. So, you know, and, and sometimes little pictures. I drew, a, I remember one time there was a guy who uh, was really into flying. So I created a PC folder for him and I, 
I drew a picture of a plane with a little pilot in there waving, you know, and it was it was not well received. And what ended up happening is Scientology internationally actually kind of cracked down on doing stuff like that and standardized all the folders at one point. And this was, um, I believe this was in the, in the early 90s before I actually got in the Sea Org. These instructions came down. And what they said was all folders are to be very utilitarian looking, basically. And they were to be stamped. The important thing was these stamps. And this was a legal uh, OSA requirement that the stamp had to say on it. All the orgs had to, had to get a stamp that said, confidential, confessional, priest, penitent, privilege only, or file, priest, penitent, privilege, file, you know, uh, authorized personnel only. Something It said something like that. And this was a legal requirement that was supposed to be able to keep prying eyes like those of the FBI, if they were to raid a church, they were supposed to not be able to look in these folders because of this stamp, right? Well, I don't know if that's a legal argument that actually holds water or not, but we were required to, to put these stamps on all the folders we had. And then what ended up happening was um, a company, I think a Scientologist, because uh, I don't think this was internally done by the Sea Org, but somebody started creating pre-printed folders. And um, and they started getting barcoded and computerized. And, and there was a computer tracking system that was created in order to log every single folder in existence. And, and you can imagine when you're dealing with, like in Los Angeles or in Clearwater, when you have thousands of people over the years coming through these places, you end up with thousands, even hundreds of thousands of folders. And they're thick. I mean, some of these folders get to be about three, four inches high before you make a new one. And like I said, you could have a person like me in for 20, 25, 30 years, 60, 70, 80. I've seen 200 folders. I mean, some people have a lot of folders. So they have warehouses that they have to rent where they keep these things or, or purchase buildings where they, where they store PC folders. And there are warehouses of these in Los Angeles and in Clearwater, Florida. And everywhere else, there's a Sea Org base. And the bigger Scientology city-level churches also sometimes have to go out and rent storage space to hold all the damn folders that they are responsible for. Because you can't ever, ever, ever throw away a PC folder. You don't destroy them. You don't throw them away. You don't shred them. Never. Even mine. Uh, suppressed people, right? People who are who are declared suppressive, they don't get rid of their folders. They actually, they very much hold on to those folders because the folders are where all the blackmail material is that we're always talking about. When they, when somebody gets declared suppressive, you know, and they're gonna, if they go make trouble, like me or you know, Leah or Mike or you know, anybody who was in Scientology and goes out and starts making noise, they pull all the folders and they go through them page by page, and they look for every single mistake, problem, issue, unresolved complaint, uh, unresolved um, immorality, right? Criminal activity that the person has talked about that they've been involved in, drug use. I mean, it's all in there. It, you'd be amazed at some of the stuff that people have said uh, that, they, that goes in those folders. I mean, everything and anything you can imagine, it's in there. 
So um, they go through all those, and that's where they find all that material that they use to create those hate websites and stuff like that, is it comes straight out of all these folders. So this is kind of the importance of these folders. And Michael, you only asked about the creative, you know, artistic, uh, you know, making of these folders. Well, that pretty much all got knocked out when these folders were all standardized and stamped and approved and and all of that. I could go into some more detail about it, but I think it would be kind of boring for, for most people. That's basically the gist of it with these things. And um, the thing about these folders and files are that they are not the individual's property. And you actually sign legal documents that specifically state that the folders and all the information in it and everything you have, you, you've, you've put there is actually the property of the Church of Scientology. And so you don't get them. And I think there's been a one or two court cases where PC folders have been gotten back from the church. I think they were redacted in, in the cases where that happened. The church, you know, went through and and, uh, and and shredded some stuff in them or cut stuff out or vetted them, as they say. And um, yeah, but that's that's how it is. So it's so all this stuff is it's not like when you leave Scientology or after you've left, you can just call and say, hey, I want my folders because they're not yours. <laughs> and that is one of the biggest dangers about Scientology is that you're confessing all this stuff and telling them these things. And it's, you know, it's not even your property. So anyway, there's uh, some more information for you about that. Jonathan Perry. I'm really into aviation, and one thing I'm very familiar with is spatial disorientation, which is when you can't see the horizon, and you could be upside down and not even know it. As an analogy, could that same kind of spatial disorientation be caused if you're hooked up to a lie detector or e-meter, and the operator is telling you that what you're saying isn't true when you know for a fact it is? If I hooked myself up to a lie detector and just asked it questions, I think I would lose my bearings really fast and could convince myself of anything, especially if you believe that I tell the lie detector that the sky is purple enough that eventually I will believe it and won't even know what blue means anymore. What do you think? All right, Jonathan, thank you for this. I thought I would take advantage of this question to because uh, it's a good question, and I thought I would bring up two things on this. Um, first thing is in directly answering your question, Jonathan, yeah, you're kind of describing a bit of a disassociation or a disassociated state or, you know, kind of, you know, you start kind of, whoa, losing touch with reality, feeling, whoa, woozy, you're, you can't trust your perceptions or your perceptions somehow seem distorted or off. And that can cause a real panic that can cause anxiety that can cause a panic attack. There's a lot of things that could, you know, negative stuff that could spring from such a situation. And uh, so, of course, you know, you'd want to avoid something like that. Um, now that, of course, you're talking about asking yourself. And this is, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming by your questioning that you are looking at the dials or the needles or the, the pins on the lie detector and watching it. And so you're seeing the responses and reactions in real time as you are sitting there thinking about stuff um, and then seeing, you know, what's happening with it. And if you're judging what's happening on that, um, it could become, you could rev yourself up very quickly because it becomes like a negative feedback loop where 
the machine is saying, oh, you know, you, you have a thought or have an idea and the machine responds negatively for, for whatever reason, or you're interpreting that the machine is responding negatively. And then you're like, oh God, well, that was wrong. And then it does it again. Oh no. Right. Then, oh, that was wrong too. Oh no. But then that was it. And and it just, and the anxiety level starts coming up, you see, because what's happening with a lie detector and what's happening with an e-meter is it's measuring skin resistance to to an electrical flow. It's, It's an electrical resistance. And the electrical signal, by the way, and I think I've said this before, but the electrical signal is going over the surface of your skin. It is not penetrating your skin. It's not registering your heartbeat. It's not registering, you know, deep muscle tissue or anything like that. It's not, there's not enough electronic force going through the the carrier wave of the signal going across your body to penetrate your skin. So it just covers over the surface of it. So what is it that changes the resistance of your skin? What does that? Sweat. Muscle tension, uh, change in hormones, change in change in pulse will or can affect it, right? But mostly, it's going to be moisture content, saline content. It's going to be muscle tension, and which is in in terms of the lie detector or the e meter, has to do with how much contact with the leads is going on. You see, so if you increase the amount of contact, then you decrease resistance because you're increasing contact. So you can, you know, and, and as you, if you're squeezing the cans, even, even micro tensions in your muscles, you can't even feel the changes or micro changes in the moisture in your palm or even anywhere on your skin, under arms, et cetera. Remember, the electrical flow is going all over. So these things are what are, is what the needle on the dial or the pins on a lie detector, that's what it's registering. It's not measuring your thoughts. There is no way to directly measure your thoughts and <laughs> not in a not in, not like that. Okay. Not with not with electrical skin resistance, there isn't. Okay. So that's so you have to understand what it is that's being measured in order to understand what the machine's actually doing versus in Scientology, let's say, what Hubbard says the e-meter is doing, or even with a lie detector, it's not a lie detector. It's a skin measurer, <laughs> you know? And the lie detector, of course, is also measuring heart rate. It's got another uh, thing that's measuring that, and it's measuring respiration, right? How much are you breathing? Um, so these are the three things that the, that, the, that the lie detector or the polygraph is graphing. And uh, that's why... Um, it is really fallacious thinking. It's really wrong-headed thinking, in other words, to think that these things are measuring your lies or your truth or are in any way an accurate reflection of what you're thinking about. They're not. Everybody thinks thousands of thoughts all day, every day. You're, you got all kinds of things going on up here, right? <sighs> Only some of these thoughts affect your body and your system in such a way that it actually changes it in significant ways. And that's where the measurements come in for these machines. And then we start making inferences as to why your body is changing its responses. Oh, 
His heart rate went up in response to me asking him this question. That must mean he's lying to me. Well, that's not necessarily true at all. That's not a correct inference. Somebody could be nervous for a lot of reasons and their heart could start going up. I happen to have an interesting situation with my heart, I found out years ago, where it will just randomly start going up and down in pulse rate. All on its own. The doctors were like, wow, that's interesting. I said, yeah, that is kind of interesting, isn't it? And that's about, and we both shrugged, and that was that, right? But it's, but that happens. So what if I happen to be sitting on a lie detector, right? Oh, well, you must be lying. That's not necessarily true at all, right? So it's very, very important. These, these little distinctions that don't sound like a big deal are actually a very big deal when it comes to accurate, accurate interpretation of the measurements you're taking. There's nothing wrong with taking these measurements, but what you're going to do with them, right, has a lot to do with whether, you know, what you're doing is manipulative or useful or helpful. So, um, okay, so those were a couple of things I wanted to say about that. The second point I wanted to make is that Hubbard actually, I thought you might, guys might find this interesting, that in Scientology, Hubbard actually wrote an issue where he said that if you misread an e-meter... <laughs> You can make anything a reality. He actually acknowledged this exact point, which is why I thought, you know, I, I would take this question up because Hubbard himself said, yeah, this can happen. You can get a ridiculous situation. If you, if you read the meter a particular way, you could create the situation that you, the, the example Hubbard gives, well, I won't give that example because it's a little technical, but I'll say um, a, a similar analogy is that you is that you could use an e-meter to convince a person that a cat tortured them through the reads, through the reactions of the needle. If you if you did it in a particular way, which Hubbard describes and says this is not the right thing to do, but this could happen and this has happened, and and so I'm writing this issue so it doesn't happen again. You know, you could you could get people convinced that absolutely impossible, ludicrous, crazy things that could never have happened actually did happen. And that really is a reflection of interpretation of the needle and the meter again, right? So so that's what it kind of comes down to. And, and uh, you know, like I said, eventually I'll get that video done where I'll break all of this down and I'll show you guys the meter and stuff. Um, but... For now, that's uh, descriptive enough, I think, that it kind of gives you some idea of what's going on with this and why it is. I mean, basically, what I just explained to you is the, is the reason why the e-meter and all the things Hubbard says about it are absolutely ludicrous, right? They are not universally nothing. There is no interpretation of these dials and needles and, and, and numbers, whether on a lie detector or whether on an e-meter, there is no golden rule, absolutely true thing that these devices will do that will always mean that the person is lying or telling the truth or that you're reading their thoughts. It just doesn't work that way. We're way too complicated and we got way too much stuff going on physiologically and, and psychologically for such simple Simon interpretations of us. 
And that's that's kind of the bottom line with that. So anyway, I hope that um, is useful and helpful to you, Jonathan. And uh, there you go. Melanie Quint. Do you think that Scientology or indeed any other cult, quote unquote, would have risen and become a real religion if there wasn't Christianity or other larger religions in their way? I'm wondering if they had all started at once, whether Scientology would win as it claims to take a more scientific approach rather than the good old Bible. Maybe it would crash when people got to the top level and realized it was a crock. If you think about how Christians came to power, it was surely by using coercive control, shunning, finances, information, and death. The same tactics have been used in all the big faiths slash religions. They own the lion's share of real estate, especially in the UK. They have their own schools where their doctrine is spread. Priests were sent to houses to make church attendance mandatory. You couldn't get married or buried if you didn't belong. They are also hierarchical organizations. Many of these things are in the dim and distant past, and to survive, they have had to adapt. They have had the luxury of time to be much more palatable to the ordinary people. If you apply the statement, what happens when you try to leave, well back in the day, you would have been murdered. Churches are still monetized, but you can get away with not paying. But is that because they already have the power and finance? I know people that pay 10% of their salary to a Christian church. If you don't think it would be Scientology, which of the newer religions do you think would have won? Would we have seen Scientology, Mormonism, and the JWs at war over hearts and minds? Maybe it would be the ones that give back to society regardless of a person's beliefs in some way. It seems that many, many people need faith and or religion in their lives, and there's nothing wrong with that either. All right, Melanie, thank you for this question. And basically, you actually kind of summed up the gist of the of the issue at the last sentence of your question there, right? Because the, the fact of the matter is that it's an empirical fact that human beings need to have some level of comfort and community and support and um, and an idea that they is that there is purpose and meaning to their life and they need something to they need an external source for morality or for um, telling them what's right and wrong. And we, we, we do crave or look for authority figures. And why wouldn't we? We're raised with them. We, we come into this world with authority figures, you know, lording over us. And it's, and it's kind of that way all through our lives. There are none of us who are, you know, unless you go off onto some island and live by yourself, you can't escape, you know, the, the, the social hierarchies that we create. And until you go off onto that island, by the way, you are just as dependent as everybody else on everybody else in order to survive. You never have gotten along alone, right? That's a bit of a myth. So, um, okay. So now as so religion plugs into this need, this emotional need that we have, and as, and as sort of a societal cultural need that we have, by offering lots and lots of answers to the problem of how do we organize, how do, what should we believe, what sh what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. There's a lot of ready-made answers in these groups, and that's why they have such appeal. You don't have to come up with your own answers. You don't even have to think about your own answers. We will give them to you. And uh, clearly, it's, it's not even like 
I'm I'm saying this in some snide, snarky way where I'm trying to like degrade everybody by saying that this is a need we have. It's just it's just a fact. It is. So um, so the religious solutions to these issues or problems have been the thing that we've had for most of the time that we've been around as a civilization, as a walking, talking, you know, kind of uh, animal here on this planet. We've been using religion as the as the basis for our societies, for our, our value sets, and for the answers to the deep, important, tough questions that really none of us know the answers to. Why are we here? Where are we going? What happens after we're gone? Is there anything that happens to us after we're gone? These are the things that religion serves us with. And these are not, you know, uh, these are these are valuable and important things. However, you'll notice that in all of this, I never use the word truth, (laughs) okay? Truth has nothing to do with it. It's not a matter of we need truthful, factual answers because clearly we don't. It's obvious we don't. I I was fine with Scientology's bullshit answers for 27 years. They served me quite well. I got along really well in life for a real long time. (laughs) really well in life, quote unquote. Um, But I did get along. I had a worldview. I had a value set. I had acculturation within a group that accepted me and I accepted them. In other words, emotional needs and societal cultural needs were being met by this set of ideas from L. Ron Hubbard and the culture that he created around that set of ideas, which is what we call the religious organization of, or the cult organization of Scientology, um, you know, you scale that up and you get the Catholic Church and you scale it up even further and you get all of Christianity. So same questions, same needs, same way of feeding and and, and uh, meeting those needs. So you ask, would Scientology have won over the other religions if they hadn't gotten in the way first? Well, I have to say no, because Scientology absolutely requires technology in order for it to operate. Hubbard himself said that Scientology and some of its principles were related back to Buddhism, and and there's also psychotherapy stuff in there and all kinds of mental quackery and wackery. And of course, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy dollops of Madame Blavatsky and transcendentalism and theosophy. And uh, there's a lot of mix into the, the brew called Scientology. But one of the most important things in Scientology and one of the things that really sets it apart as different from other religious activities is this e-meter and the technology of it. And Hubbard is crystal clear over and over again that Scientology will not work and you cannot go up to the OT levels and make it actually even to the state of clear without an e-meter. It's just not going to happen. So um, so that's why Scientology could never have been something that could have usurped Christianity if it had come along in, in year zero or something because they didn't have any electronics yet. And you have to have that. So that kind of puts Scientology out of the running entirely. Could the the story of the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, could the Jehovah's Witnesses have come along 
uh, before Christianity? Well, no, because the Jehovah's Witnesses are based entirely on Christianity and are more of the uh, Christianity 2.0. It's kind of the rewrite with the Book of Mormon. But it all relies on concepts and ideas and value sets and acculturation from the Christian faith. Otherwise, Mormonism is meaningless. So it, it does not stand apart and alone and unique. It has this whole earlier beginning, you could say, of Jesus and Christianity and that whole faith. So again, uh, so Mormons, no, not so much. Same with JWs, right? These are cults that are offsprings or um, belief sets that are evolved from the base belief set of Christianity. That's why, you know, yeah, it's big, it's huge, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's fairly simple in a lot of its ideas. In other words, it's easy to communicate to the masses. And you can get complicated and deep with Christianity and with Christian apologetics and that kind of stuff and, and kind of go down those rabbit holes. But most people don't care at all. They're perfectly happy to go to church on Sunday, listen to somebody, tell them how to be a good person, do their best to try to follow that advice and just kind of get through their lives with the hope and idea that maybe there's something better waiting for them after this life is over because, you know, this life is only what it is. And the best that this life can give you is a lot of sensation and a lot of, you know, kind of, I mean, I guess if you have a lot of money and a lot of, you know, power or whatever, and you know, that's about as good as it gets here. So people aspire to more. They can imagine a much better existence. <laughs> and they kind of hope that maybe that existence is a reality. And if they do the right things and say the right things, then that's their ticket into that. And why not? You know, it all kind of comes down to Pascal's wager in a way. You know, if, it, it, you know, all things being equal, why don't, why don't we just go ahead and say it's true on the off chance that it is? And then I get my golden ticket into heaven, right? Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, from all of the people I've ever talked to over the years who are believers or true believers, and and if, we, if we're not getting into the extremist levels of things, you know, the vast majority of people are not at the extreme ends. It's a bit of a standard distribution curve. You know, most people are in the middle. It, the extremists are the loud ones, but the, all the people in the middle are kind of like, yeah, I don't hear that. I'm not, I'm not interested. You know, they just want to get through their lives. So anyway, I'm kind of going on and on here, but I'm trying to make the point that um, it, while an interesting question, I, I don't really think anything else could have happened but what did happen. And um, unless there was some kind of significant change made to us or to the cultures that existed when Christianity came in, when Buddhism came up, when Islam came up. I mean, these are very culturally, if you go back to the history and origin story of these groups, it is all about the culture that they came from and the value sets and the ideas and the conflicts of those times. That's where that stuff comes out of. And so, if, and so it caught fire because it was hitting a touchstone of that time and slowly over generations grew and morphed and evolved and changed with the times as it needed to in order to continue to have appeal to a broad mass of people. And as long as something can morph and change and grow with a culture, I mean, I guarantee you, I guarantee you 
regardless of whatever book you're going to read or whatever thing you're going to find or whatever authority you subscribe to, I am a thousand percent sure that if I were to send a Christian of any denomination right now back to the year 300 to where the Christians were then, and they could actually talk to each other, I think they would have hardly any common ground. Any. I mean, Christianity has changed so much over the decades, over the millennia, over the centuries, right? And most believers, again, don't care. <laughs> they don't. They only care about what they're experiencing in the here and now. They don't care about what people believe back in the year 300, 1300, or 1800, you know? It doesn't matter to them. But I find it fascinating. <laughs> so, and I find the growth and evolution of these groups absolutely fascinating. And I wish I had the time to invest in going down the rabbit holes of Christianity and and Christian apologetics, because I, I know there's a lot of different rabbit holes, and it's kind of fascinating stuff. Um, but I don't really believe, uh, you know, as a final answer to your question, Melanie, I don't, I don't believe that things could have really worked out any other way than they did work out uh, because of all the factors I've said here. And I, I, I don't know. I, I hope my answer here is useful or helpful or in some way entertaining. So <laughs> thank you very much for asking me that, though, Melanie. I, I enjoy talking about that stuff. Eugene S., can you please say a little more about what actually happens at Scientology services, like weddings, funerals, and Sunday services? If I had no knowledge of the cult and randomly walked into one of their buildings, would the experience immediately hit me as weird, off, or unusual? Would I mistake it for a traditional religion, or would the differences be immediately apparent? Okay, Eugene, thank you for this question. I think it's pretty clear now that a Scientology Sunday service is a very different looking and, and feeling thing from um, what you might find in any Christian church or faith or any Islamic faith or Jewish faith for that matter. Um, there is a, there is a, 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 it's a standardized series of steps that get done on Sunday services. And you can actually see this, if like live, real, if you uh, look at Reckless Ben's um, YouTube channel. I believe he still has the video up where he and his uh, friend actually went to a Sunday service and secretly videoed it. And you can see what they do. There is a thing called group processing. Um, that is done in the Sunday services. So it, the Sunday service starts with a little sermon, which is really just a reading of some extract from one of Hubbard's books or lectures. And then you go into this group processing where the person doing the Sunday service starts giving orders to everybody in the audience. And they're all supposed to carry out those orders in unison. And these are simple Simon orders. Look at the ceiling. Look at the floor. Look at that wall. Perceive the wall behind you without looking at it. Uh, could, you know, I'm just making that up. But, you know, you get commands like that. But you more, they're more, I, I, maybe I shouldn't have thrown that as a curveball because really they're much more kind of touch the floor, touch the touch your chair, you know, look at the person next to you, say hi to, to, to three people, and this goes on and on and on. This is called objective auditing, um, which is different from subjective auditing, which is in your head. Remember this, remember that, recall this, recall that. That's in your head. 
Objective auditing is dealing with the objects of the real world around you. And generally, if you do this for a couple minutes, you'll make people very cheerful. And you can actually establish some pretty interesting stuff if you do this with groups of people. This is why the large group awareness trainings, the LGATs like Landmark Forum and stuff like that, do this kind of thing. It helps get everybody there. People kind of pep up a little bit. They're looking around. They're talking. But at the Sunday services, they go way past that point, way past it. I mean, we were doing Sunday services where we were doing this group auditing for like a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour at a shot. And let me tell you, after about five minutes of this, it's just plain torturous. It's exhausting. It's awful. And we hated it. So, um, but Hubbard invented this, this group processing stuff. So this is a mainline feature of the Sunday services. This is basically what's going on at them as the main sort of uh, activity, uh, other than the um, reading of uh, Hubbard's, you know, uh, lectures or whatever. And then they sort of ended off with a little prayer of some kind, which is very odd. When I was a Scientologist, I reacted very negatively to this little prayer they were saying where they were like, you know, to the creator of all, may all be great or something. I mean, I don't know what the hell they were saying, but it was some stupid little two-liner. And that was the end of the Sunday service. So that's kind of what you would expect to see there. Um, as far as like weddings and funerals, Scientology weddings look exactly like any other kind of wedding. The only difference really is the vows that people take. Um, the, the Hubbard has some pre-written uh, marriage ceremonies that, um, that Scientologists will sometimes either use or modify. And... Um, and that's, that's about the only real difference you're going to see there. In terms of funerals, kind of the same. You know, it, it depends on the individual person as to whether they want to get cremated or buried in the ground. But what words are said are either, again, taken from L. Ron Hubbard from some pre-written funeral services that he wrote or, you know, they can roll their own. So those, but the, but the look and feel of it and what goes on in it very, very similar to what goes on in a non-Scientology funeral or, again, wedding. It's the Sunday services where things get really, really crazy and weird. So, um, anyway, there you go. Adam Masters. When you were in the Sea Org, did you believe what the church said about SPs? Did you really believe that it was the SPs, along with the psychiatrists and the government, who were preventing Scientology from clearing the planet? Did your view of SPs change over time when you were in the Sea Org, or was it only changed once you got out? Thanks for the question, Adam. Yes, I really believed it. Yep, I did. I actually thought that the suppressive people in the world were uh, anti-Scientology and were working diligently to try to stop Scientology from what it was trying to do, which is saving the world. So, of course, we thought of these guys as bad people, and we were primed for that. Hubbard lays it all out, right? He tells you in no uncertain terms. These are bad, horrible, criminal elements. That's who SPs are. They're Dillinger, Hitler, Napoleon, you know, uh, serial killers, antisocials. I mean, these, this, is, this is SPs. And sure, of course, SPs could come along and look in the window of Scientology and come in and take a personality test and think to themselves, Ah, here's something I could mess up. Here's somebody, here's a group of people. See, this is how Hubbard describes it. 
He says, yeah, they come in and they look and sound like they want to do Scientology, but what they're really thinking, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy this place. And they actually proceed forward as though this is a premeditated activity that they're engaged in because Hubbard paints these picture of suppressive people as really self-aware, awful, evil people. Like they know that they are trying to undo and destroy things. That's their mission in life. That's what gets them off. They love doing crap like that. So, of course, I would believe in SPs because there really are SPs. I mean, there are people in the world who fit that definition of Hubbard's suppressive person. And they're awful people. And they really do exist. So why would I have any reason to doubt that, they, that some of them might not be so exaggerated as a, as a, you know, a, a Christie or a Hitler or a Napoleon? You know, maybe it's not quite that awful, right? Um, but they come, they come in and they, they look and sound normal, you know? They, 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 they have money, they have a job, they have a family, but, you know, there's something off, something wrong. And sure enough, of course, you know, there, there is with some people. So, uh, so sure, of course, I believed that that was the case. Where I started breaking with the church and seeing kind of, you know, wait a second, something's not right here, is after I got off the RPF. You know, there were people who had been declared suppressive who I knew were not these antisocial criminal types. They were not evil people. They were not narcissistic. They were not awful. They were good people. And yet the church was having to declare them suppressive. And why? Well, because they disagreed, because they were speaking up, because they were not cooperating. They were not loyal. They were not loyal. And that was really the line in the sand. And that was the first sort of brick that sort of came out of the wall of, of, of stupidity in my, in my head, right? That was keeping me from seeing the truth of the situation is when I started seeing, un, you know, without question in my own mind, I knew this person and this person and this person had been declared suppressive, but they were not actually suppressive according to how Hubbard describes them. What's up with this? Well, you know, they weren't loyal. Um, then there was somebody who was declared who I had met and interacted with and who had been so OG that L. Ron Hubbard had met and interacted and worked with this person. This was a Sea Org member. This was a high-level Sea Org member. And when I saw his, per his declare order and read it, because I, I was like, I want to see this. This does not make sense to me. An OSA person had to come and sit down with me in a closed room and give me the issue and make me and let me read it right there and then take it back. I couldn't keep it. I couldn't make copies, anything like that. And so I read this whole thing. I knew it was nonsense. Like I couldn't tell. I was reading it. And I was going, this isn't true. These things they're saying about him can't be true. And yet here they were saying them. And I thought, well... I know this person. I don't know them well. I didn't know them intimately, but I knew them well enough to know that these things the church was claiming about this person simply weren't true. And that was the real, oh my God, now I see what's going on. These SP declares are being used to get rid of people who are just being noisy, 
who are just making waves, who are saying, hey, things aren't right here. Out, you're gone. And that's when the sort of the, the floodlights came on and the, and the dawn, you know, the sun rose and I was like, oh, okay. This is wrong. This is bad. This is really bad. And that wasn't what caused me to leave the church, actually. But it was a major nail. It was actually one of the nails in the coffin, okay? It still took me about another two years to, to get my head out enough to, to fully get out. Um, because I didn't yet acknowledge all the lies I thought maybe that was a particular problem in a particular area of Scientology having to do with the justice. But I thought other parts were still kind of rational and, and, and keeping together and doing the good job and doing the good work. And it took another two years to disabuse me of that. So that's kind of my own experience of that and how I, how I live that. Um, and that's how my view of SPs changed over time. And of course, once I left Scientology, once I got out of the Sea Org and read the full depth of just how long this had been going on, that Hubbard had been doing this shtick since the very beginning of creating the suppressive person doctrine. Well, that is when, you know, I realized just how evil this group was that I had been involved in, right? But I, that was after I got out. So there you go. Laura C., I've been watching your show for several years and I've never been able to feel confident writing in with a question, but this story I heard is a doozy, and I was wondering if you had heard about it. A woman I was recently acquainted with lives in and runs a business in New Ipswich, New Hampshire. Apparently, one of the local churches has become friendly with Scientology and have been subjecting their congregation to the practices of L. Ron Hubbard. They had a tent revival this weekend. My friend looked into it because she wanted to see what they were up to, and tickets were astronomically high to attend. Since Scientology has also made recent bedfellows with Islam, is this a new way for them to draw revenue into the coffers without having to do a lot of the heavy lifting? In other words, is Scientology finding a different way to actively recruit by having other churches bring worshipers to the table on a silver platter? I guess this has been going on for quite some time, as early as the 80s, and the congregation is somewhat affluent. If it's happening in this little town, is it happening elsewhere? The closest Scientology to me is Boston Org, one and a half hours away, but they could be doing some public outreach. All right, Laura, thank you for this question. I don't know is my first answer to this, because I don't know, I'm not privy to what all the individual orgs are doing as far as bringing or working on an interfaith or multi-faith aspect or or or. Uh, trying to ally with other churches. I can say that it has definitely been a historical point for Scientology uh, centrally for the, for the mother church to, to say, yeah, maybe we should be, you know, any kind of public outreach, any kind of work with the community, with other faith groups is absolutely a good idea. Clearly, the church is aligned with the Nation of Islam in a very strong way. So they are, that would be a great example of of, of what they're talking about. But um, in terms of working with other churches, doing a tent revival, that sounds a little interesting to me. Scientology is not at all interested in forwarding the message of Christianity or Christ. So that's fascinating to me that they were connected up with this group in some way. Scientology is interested, though, if it could infiltrate a church activity and bring Scientology to it. 
right? They, the Scientologists aren't going to take the Christianity, but if they can get the Christians to take the Scientology, oh, they'll definitely do that. See, Scientology is not being well served by David Miscavige in terms of the dissemination or propagation of the religion. It's really at the bottom levels that the proselytizing occurs, all the rest of Scientology and the Sea Org are hardly doing anything in order to actually bring in new members or promote Scientology. And, of course, it's got a really toxic reputation, and it's, and it's earned it. So the lower-level staff who are genuinely interested and whose job it is to proselytize Scientology— have to come up with or roll their own solutions to this problem because the mother church isn't really doing a whole lot about it. I mean, you know, they get a free, they get a Super Bowl ad every year. That's about it. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so they might try all kinds of things at the local levels to work with other congregations, exactly as you described, in order to bring in new members that way. And, and if they're just kind of doing that activity through at, at Boston, Maybe, you know, word gets around and maybe it doesn't. Um, there is an informal network amongst the city level, the class five orgs that, the, you know, they do talk to each other a little bit, especially when something really good is happening. Something like kind of is blowing up. Everybody else wants to know, what are you doing? What's happening? How are you doing that? Um, when I was in San Diego all those years ago, and we were doing that 20 auditor project, and in three weeks, we'd recruited all these people, other orgs were calling us like, hey, I heard you guys are recruiting like 20 auditors. What's going on? How are you doing this? Because they are trying to do it, but they don't know how, and they, and they never really work it out. Um, so when they hear somebody else is going all gangbusters, they want to find out how. And uh, anyway, that happens all the time in that world. So that's uh, kind of what I can say about that that I think might be uh, directly addressed to the question here. And uh, thanks for asking. All right, guys. Uh, I hope we had some fun with this episode. And, uh, you know, forgive me for ranting at the beginning. Uh, you know, I do get a little frustrated as a content creator. And, you know, it's no reflection of my opinion of you guys or of my audience or anything like that. It's just some frustration I have sometimes. I try my best, I really do, you know, to put out the best content that I can. And at the end of the day, you guys are the judge of whether the content I'm putting out is any good or not for you. And um, I just want to be able to align what I'm trying to do with what you guys want from me so that I can grow and improve my channel and um, give you the best viewing experience that I can. So... That all being said, thanks for coming around and watching my show this week, guys. I really appreciate you inviting me into your home. And I hope that the answers to your questions were uh, interesting, educational, and informative. And I will see you next week. Bye-bye.